Hello and welcome to Obiter Dicta, Bloomsbury Professionals podcast on all things law and tax with me, Rachel Sherlock, and also Gráinne McMahon. This episode is part two of our interview with Benedict O'Floyne, Senior Counsel and author of Practice and Procedure in the Superior Courts, the third edition of which has been recently published by Bloomsbury Professional and is available to purchase now. If you missed part one of our interview, don't forget to listen back to it. But for now, we hope you enjoy part two of our discussion. Ben, we'll move to a different uh, topic, if you don't mind, and one that has been fascinating me, and I've been dying to talk to you about this. Uh, You do an awful lot of work for the Criminal Assets Bureau, and you've been involved in a number of high-profile cases for CAB against high-profile individuals, let's just say. Um, That must be incredibly challenging work. Could you tell us a little bit about it? It is challenging, but it is one of the great uh, joys of my life that I've been privileged to act for the Bureau since a couple of months after it started. Um, What I bring to bear, it hasn't eroded my joyfulness at the country, but, but you're right. I mean, I've had to deal with an awful lot of, um, what's a good way of putting it, challenging people in the context of it. But the main thing that I take out of it isn't so much the the people on the other side of the house, it's the people that I've had the opportunity to work with, you know, exemplary individuals who are really committed to making society a better place, doing their work efficiently, you know, the solicitors who work, the, the, the chief state solicitors unit that, that works with the Bureau, uh, the guards, revenue officers, customs, tax officials. You know, it's a, there's a, a lot of different streams of individuals have come together in that organization. But the one characteristic that unites them, in my experience, is they're really punctilious in being fair as well as being efficient and sometimes it's not the eye-catching individuals that have resonated most. I mean, if you're in a small community and there's what maybe on a national scale would look like a small-time person who's a sort of a delinquent influence in your community and they're getting away with it, well, the Bureau intervening to bring them to heel has a huge effect in your community. You know, it's, it's changed the lives of people that all of a sudden, instead of living in an area or in a place where you've got people wandering around and behaving in these ways and behaving in these ways with impunity. They're brought to task for it. And that's had real effect on individual lives as well as the big eye-catching thing in the societies at, at large. So it's, it's been a real privilege to work with these people and to see that from the inside. And, you know, it is, it is uh, as I say, it's, it's been one of the great joys of practising at the bar. And I'm sure it's a very interesting work. Some may shy away from it, though, Ben. And I wondered, we've seen, you know, some reports of some legal practitioners being intimidated by some in society. Have you ever experienced um, any sort of intimidation uh, with your work in the, in the criminal field? Sure, sure. Look, it, it, it happens. You know, sometimes, forgivably, people are under stress. You know, I, I don't suppose any, any of us like being brought to account for things that we've done. So sometimes understandably, some le- sometimes less understandably. But anybody who got the opportunity to do it, I would be saying to them, we, we have a basic principle in the profession of uh, representing people without fear or favour on either side. So if you're given the opportunity to do it, I would say you should take that opportunity. And the people who really shoulder the burden 
are less the barristers and it's more the people who are working in the bureau the whole time, the people who have to serve the documents, the people who have to make the tax assessments. Although they have anonymity in the case of some of the officers, the guards, for example, don't. You know, and they get injured, they get abused, they get, uh, you know, th- these are the guys who are dealing with the front line. And the thing that I've had to do is in the Tuppany stakes in comparison. You know. Ben, we've been following developments in the Jonathan Dowdall case, which is before the courts, and, and, and we won't go into it because it's before the courts. But there's been quite a, a lot of commentary on the witness protection programme, which you'll know is uh, dealt with excellently in Alice Harrison's book about the Special Criminal Court. However, given your work in the criminal courts area, or the criminal law area, should I say, I wanted to ask you about the Witness Protection Programme, and there seems to be a lack of legislation governing that area. Could you maybe tell us your views on that? Well, sure. It's... um... Look, it's a very fraught area because the answer to it and the challenge posed by it doesn't solely reside in just making a legislative change or changing the law. You know, ultimately, we need to remember or remind ourselves that we live in a small, tightly knit community of, you know, five and a half million odd people on an island. And as was said by a judge many years ago in the in the context of service. Uh, serving proceedings he said um, look we're not like England he said I mean here you can send it to Uncle Pat Karasaveen and it'll get to him now that might be quite as true now as it was a few years ago but the essence of the point he was making and the essence of the witness protection challenge is people are known they're known to each other these are tight-knit communities and then you're dealing with communities within communities so in order to give people new lives, undoubtedly within Ireland, but further afield, is a hugely complex and expensive and problematic area. And you're right, it it requires attention and and a system. But ultimately, um, we are, and for the foreseeable future, will be reliant on people doing the right thing. You know, and and, uh, I've been in cases where you know, witnesses have been reluctant to give evidence, and understandably so. You know, they, I, I don't live next door to the person that they're live, living next door to. So it's a very complex, challenging area. It does require attention, but the, the issue doesn't stop with just a, a, a simple legislative intervention, because even if you send somebody to the other side of the world, we live in a in a much more globally aware interrelated uh, world than, than was even the case 10 years ago. So so it's not an easy question. And Ben, in those cases that you have dealt with, uh, where I suppose people have been shy to give evidence, that might not be the right word to say, but you know what I mean. Um, yeah. The, the Witness Protection Programme might seem you know, like the answer to the prayer is, but, uh, you know, you're you're put in another country, if you are put in another country, you're on the same level of income that you could have been. There have been reports that for one uh, person that was in the witness program, protection program, that when someone came to his house, he had just a stick of butter in the fridge that, you know, you're, you're not 
it's it's not the answer to all your prayers, but but for some it it may be the only answer. And so I wanted to ask your experience of dealing with clients where you've maybe suggested that they go in, or there has been a suggestion that they go into the witness protection program. And what's generally, or, or maybe generally isn't the word, but what has been the feedback or the pros and cons of it? Well, well, my experience has been more with if you like, what I'm going to call the person in the more intermediate position. You see, the the very prominent witness in a very eye-catching set of proceedings, that's that's one category of person. But, you know, what about the person who's having to swear an affidavit or give a statement to the guards in, a, you know, tax proceedings against somebody involved in criminality or in a regular sort of proceeds of crime type application. And they could fall into any one of categories. It, you know, a professional person who just happens to have had as a client, a person who's involved in something, a neighbor, somebody who's bought a car. There's, there's all sorts of people who fall into this intermediate category. And all of a sudden, they're having to give an important piece of evidence. And it may only be a part of the case, but it's an important part of the case and the person who they're living next to that they've been dealing with is sort of sitting across the room from them and is going to be living with them or long after the case is over, they'll have to explain their involvement to. And they're not the eye-catching, but their situation is almost more precarious than the, the person in the eye-catching proceedings where there's a certain amount of momentum behind doing something for them. So it, it, I'm not sure that I'd even... Even with something like that, it's it, it's not simple. And it's not as simple as simply saying, well, let everybody who's going to f- swear every affidavit and every set of proceedings have an entitlement to start a new life somewhere else. I mean, that wouldn't be practical either. So uh, there's a huge amount of challenges around it. It's a, an interesting topic all of its own, you know. Oh, absolutely. And it's uh, great to get your views on it. It's been commented about the need for legislation because currently it's it's dealt with one area of the guards. And so, you know, there's been questions about whether we intervene. But as you said, there's a huge amount of thought that would need to go into that. For sure. And it, that's not to say there's no need for those that, that sort of structure and intervention, but it needs to be a broader assessment of the needs of people and how we deal with it and how we protect people. And it extends even to officers who might enjoy anonymity in one context and then return to duties and don't have the same anonymity. And, you know, that that's something that always needs to be kept under review to make sure that there aren't individuals, because ultimately we're talking about individuals. We're talking about individual people and their lives and the quality of their lives, that they're not falling between two stools in relation to it. Yeah, really fascinating aspect of it. And I, I wanted to ask as well, you were a member of the expert group advising the Law Reform Commission on the consolidation and reform of the court acts. We are now seeing a lot of changes planned for the court system. Well, what do you make of these? Yeah, well, look, it's it's always a work in progress. That's the really interesting thing about us. You never get to a state of perfection where the system is is working exactly as the way you would. And sometimes that's due to resources. And, and sometimes you have to reflect necessary changes. We've, we've talked about some of them. You know, what, what is the role going to be for the oral hearing and the, the art of advocacy going forward? Are we at the beginning of a process where we'll 
eventually move to a whole lot of things, not just administrative things, not just callovers and things like that, but maybe everything being done remotely. So, you know, it was a very interesting exercise being involved in the group because the legislation does span, you know, the period since the foundation of the state, and now we're celebrating a centenary of that. So, you know, it's always a work in process, and it's really interesting to work with these people and see the different perspectives they have on the system. Well, speaking of oral advocacy, but in a slightly different uh, context, uh, you've been involved in various debates to amend the Irish Constitution, including the repeal of the Eighth Amendment, which you were against. Uh, what what motivates you to get involved in these debates? Sure. Look, this is something I probably... Um... Well, I suppose I'd answer it this way. There's, there's, there's two aspects to it. It is a source of great disappointment to me that in something as important as the Constitution, that increasingly governments, and it's not the present government, it's governments for a long time, see themselves as partisan actors. And ministers who've taken an oath to uphold the Constitution see themselves as partisan actors for this change or that change. So in an ideal world, I would like it to be the role of all of society to look at things a bit more dispassionately and have arguments made in that dispassionate way. And the the the, the referendum commission is a step towards that, but we're a long way away from that. And I believe very much that the two sides of any, any argument should be pushed. I'm a passionate believer in the way the system operates in the courts and I think equally, when you come to something as important as a constitution or change, you should have honest, fiercely fought the two sides of the argument so that everybody understands exactly what's on the table. And then they make their decision. And then people make their decision and everybody then lives with the decision. Now, moving from that to the particular, the last referendum was a very easy one to take part in because as well as that general principle quintessentially the unborn child doesn't have somebody to articulate its point of view it seemed to me that although there were some groups uh, that were taking up that uh, mantle that that was something I could usefully do um, I'll leave it to other people to judge whether it was a, whether it's appropriate whether it's effective but to the best of my abilities I put the arguments as I see them and just as I do in court in in court it's a judge in a referendum it's the people they make a pronouncement and then uh, we live with that pronouncement until there's a, the, and the next change and that's the way I approach life generally I suppose and Ben could we go back to the rules and uh, I was often wondering this when it comes to the the rules because the the new book is mammoth let's just say um and i'm really looking forward to uh going through it and maybe bringing it to bed who knows i'm joking oh. um but are you a stickler for the rules god maybe this is my opportunity to scotch that idea that i take the rules to bed it look it i would like to think uh, but oh to see ourselves as other people see us i'd like to think i'm not a fuddy-duddy stickler for the rules I do see a value in rules, though. I think that in broader society, in the courts in particular, it's a function of justice and fairness that there is clarity about what the situation is in any given scenario. 
And maybe as a society, I mean, to make it in a, the same point, but in a broader context, if we err too much towards mercy and thinking about the merciful side of things and we forget about, you know, justice, and which necessarily involves making value judgments, well, we've gone too far in one direction. But equally, you'd hate to live in a society where everybody was you know, preoccupied with rules and never really saw the broader picture or the individual or the individual case or the individual explanation for why they're in the situation that they have, which is, you know, life teaches you and definitely practice in the courts teaches you. There's a myriad of reasons why uh, something should be excused and sometimes justifiably, sometimes not so justifiably. So hopefully not a stickler, but a true believer that they have an important role? Yeah. Thanks. That's great to know. I, I'm going to finish off uh, from my side uh, before I hand you over to Rachel for the light questions and uh, hopefully a bit of crack. You've been at the bar for a very long time, since 1992, I believe. Your practice is extremely varied. What is your favourite area of law? I'm not going to uh, thank you now for outing me as having started in 1992 because that definitely puts me in the... I remember when I was practicing anybody who'd been practiced for five years, I thought they were old father time. So God knows, uh, 1992, even as you say, it sounds a long time ago. I'm going to give a very worthy answer, but it's a very sincere answer. When people come into court, almost invariably, some people not, but almost invariably, at the lowest ebb they're likely to be. They're under... Even when the, whether, whether they're plaintiffs or defendants, whether they're the accused or they're in, in a prosecutorial role, everybody is under pressure and they're on their mettle. And in that time of fragility, they come to advocates, they come to solicitors and they come to advocates and barristers. And they put an enormous amount of trust in them that in that fragile moment, you will apply... You're the best of your abilities to put the case as forcefully as they would like it to be put if they could do it themselves. And you have to juggle all the various parts that go into that and, and satisfy that need. And that the idea that people repose that confidence in you definitely puts you on your mettle and keeps you going from day to day. And I never take it lightly. And I appreciate the fact that people repose that confidence. I mean, that's the thing that I like most about us. It's it's getting up and advocating on behalf of somebody. And sometimes advocating for a position that's not popular, not popular with, with the judge even. And having to patiently and persistently and appropriately make sure that the person whose interests you're serving, that their interests are served. And, and doing that without toppling over the lines that would make you know, the advocacy too too strident or too partisan uh, and always, you know, maintaining those standards that we set for ourselves. So that's what I love most about us and um, thankfully still do after all this time. What a wonderful testament. And as Gronya said, we're just going to move to a couple of lighter questions as we close out the interview. Um, as we're talking here i can see a wonderful array of books behind you so maybe we'll start with uh, what book are you currently reading oh god um i always get nervous when the phrase lighter uh, lighter is used <laughs> i feel like i what, what what should i say uh, how do i pitch this um uh, look i'm a nerd when it comes to reading um 
Willie Dalrymple's books are the ones that are on my uh, bedside cabinet at the moment. There is a, one of them that's brilliantly written about aspects of history that I would never have thought of myself. But the reading is very eclectic. So that's what happens to be on the bedside cabinet at the moment. It could just as easily be be any other sort of genre as well. I, I enjoy reading and, and it's very eclectic. Well, you've managed to uh, be very accommodating and name a Bloomsbury author there. So if anyone wants to buy the, the Dalrymple history books. Um, so if, if your reading is that eclectic, what would you say is your favourite book? The favourite book? Um, just twist people's tales. I'm going to say Peg, Le Peg Sayers. My next question is, uh, speaking of perhaps speaking of desert islands, <laughs> three things you would bring to a desert island. That sort of sounds like you're going to send me to a desert island <laughs> because I want to read Peg. Uh, bear in mind, bear in mind, I only said that I was going to that I was reading Peg. I, I could have said I, uh, that I could have the audio. There's an audio collection of short right. stories by Peg as well. So, if I was going to desert island. Um, what would I take? I would take books, um, and I'd take a plentiful supply of them. Um, I presume if it's a desert island, that there'd be nice sunsets, and it would be very, very good to have a beer um, to appreciate while the sun was going down. And I suppose the third thing that I would take is I would take the love of my life, and she knows who she is, and the rest of you can keep guessing because this is a family, family podcast. <laughs> My next question is, could you tell us maybe a bit about one of your hobbies? I think I heard that you were a Chano singer. Yes, I'm very disappointed now at the level of research that's gone into this and outing me on all these uh, uh, channels. Yeah, I'm an enthusiastic singer. As, as with other answers, I leave it to others to judge how accomplished. We used to be a nation of singers. Um, it used to be something that wasn't terribly past remarkable. Um, but I do, and uh, I've been involved in competitions and things like that. So, yeah, it's an, I'm, I'm an enthusiastic participant with a, uh, a, a degree of success, with a degree of success too. Wonderful. And my last question is, if you weren't a lawyer, what would you be? I'm not capable of doing a normal job. Um, no, I think I better stay in the. Uh, I better just stay in what I'm doing. Um, uh, what was the words of the of the steward in the Bible? To dig, I am not able, and to beg, I am ashamed. So, I think no, I'm fit for this great sheltered employment scheme that we call the Irish Bar, and I think I better I better stay at that um, and uh, and and work out my days doing that. It, it makes me happy. Uh, I hope that I have been. Uh, to service uh, to my clients and my colleagues and uh, that people will remember any input I had fondly uh, when, when I go to that desert island. Thank you so much. That's wonderful. Thanks for joining us, Ben. It's been an absolute pleasure and your new book is uh, doing very well for us. Not at all. You're more than welcome. That's it for another episode of Obiter Dicta. Thank you to Ben for joining us. Don't forget to get your copy of the new edition of Practice and Procedure in the Superior Courts from our website, bloomsburyprofessional.com. Obiter Dicta will be back in February with an interview with Mark Tottenham on his breadth of knowledge and experience in expert witness evidence. Until next time. <laughs>